Welcome to episode 224 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This time around, we are talking about the X-Files I Want to Believe, the second film in the franchise. Fox was actually ready to go back to film and make a second movie right after season 9. They actually approached Chris Carter at the beginning of season 9, telling him we want to do another movie, and Carter basically said, no, we've got two new characters in the office with Doggett and Reyes. We've got a lot of things to line up. We will, we'll talk about it. We'll do a second movie, but not right now. And then once season nine wrapped up, they were just too tired and needed a break. So again, they put it off for a little bit. It was early 2003 when they started sitting down and trying to put it together. That's when they decided this was going to be a standalone film since they wouldn't have a TV series on the air with the Running Myth arc, that was going to be their goal. And they started planning for it, but then they ran into issues. A lot of them were on the legal side. There was some bookkeeping and money that needed to be exchanged, as was similar in the case when David Duchovny had his lawsuit against 1013 and Fox a few years prior. And they did finally get that sorted out and started working through it in 2006. It was in 2007 when Fox told them, okay, now or never, there's a writing strike looming, and we don't want to wait until that's done because we don't know how long it's going to be, and they were afraid that it was going to be too long after the end of the series to really tap into the fandom. So they put it together and eventually started filming it in late December, and that gave them a few other opportunities. Namely, They had a series that was set in the snow and in wintertime, or at least a story that would be set in the snow in winter. There'd be ice. So it was written specifically with a couple ideas in mind for locations that were in and around the Vancouver and Pemberton area in BC. That allowed them to combine a lot of the cast and crew that they'd had before. So the film was directed by Chris Carter, and it actually was his feature film directorial debut. He directed quite a few episodes of television up to this point, mostly on the X-Files, but this was his first feature, and Carter co-wrote the script with Frank Spotnitz. This would also turn out to be the final X-Files contribution by Frank Spotnitz. Now, the plot in this is mostly straightforward. Early on, we do know that Scully is now working as a medical doctor. She is completely out of the FBI, and she is approached by an agent of the FBI saying, if you have a way to get in touch with Mulder, all is forgiven, we need him back for this case. And Scully does know Mulder, he's actually hiding out in their home, gone into hermit mode, he's got a shaggy beard, which apparently Duchovny hated because of the shooting schedule. It wasn't practical to use a real beard, that would have to be regrown and shaved and regrown and shaved, so they had a fake beard that had a habit of melting under studio lights and shifting on him. It was apparently quite unpleasant to wear. But he is in this hermit mode in their home. She brings the situation to him, and he does eventually agree to help because there is the life of a young FBI agent on the line. And the reason that he's been involved is because there is a psychic who has been giving them some good leads, but they are trying to figure out if he's the real deal and legitimately psychic, or if he's just an accomplice to this crime, since he does have a criminal record for having 
sexually abused 37 boys when he was a Catholic priest. So this is a character that Scully has zero patience for, and Mulder is only giving him the time of day because there is some kind of hope for him. As things develop, we do learn that Scully has a particularly difficult case in the hospital. There's a boy who's got a presumably fatal disease. There is no confirmed treatment. There are radical experimental treatments. And the people in the Catholic hospital that she's working at are telling her, we cannot help this boy. Instead of prolonging his death and giving him more pain, let's find him a hospice that's going to ease his suffering as he departs this plane. And Scully's not willing to give up on him. And that's a lot of the conflict. Scully is now devoted to her work as a doctor and is resisting getting involved in the investigation, whereas Mulder feels like himself again. As the evidence comes in and he starts to work the case, we see him get more active, we see him shave his beard, which is that Hollywood code for, yeah, they're, they're pulling their stuff together and they're getting ready to move forward. And he is the one that is starting to believe that maybe this priest is getting the visions and he is helping them psychically. We do learn that the FBI agent is only one of a series of kidnapping victims and it's actually an illegal organ transplantation ring that's going around and is responsible for this. And one of the married couples is actually dying of lung cancer, so they are doing experiments that were actually inspired by Russian experiments that Chris Carter had seen videos of of YouTube, where they'd attached two heads to one dog, and they started talking to American researchers as well and found that, yeah, head transplantation is possible. They cannot reattach the spinal cord, so you're still paralyzed, but the mind and consciousness can be kept alive with these procedures. And that is a lot of what inspired what's happening here. So they continue the investigation and eventually do track this down, partly because of comments made by Father Joe, which he says he doesn't even understand why he made them. The words just came out of his mouth. But they do bring it in. It's not in time to save the FBI agent or many of their other victims, but they do stop the ring and save the newest victim who was run off the road because they were being stalked at a local swimming pool. And they do bring it all together. Now, in terms of the guest cast, naturally, David Duchovny, Gillian Anderson, and Mitch Pileggi are back in their roles. We don't see... Robert Patrick as John Doggett, or Annabeth Gish as Monica Reyes. They were talking about bringing them back, but it sounds like for Carter and Spotton, it's Mulder and Scully were the pair, and it really was about their story. And if they didn't have a firm role for them, they just weren't included. So they are not back in this incarnation. And as we discussed last time, or the time before when we were discussing the truth, Robert Patrick has not returned to his role in The X-Files, although Annabeth Gish will when it comes back to TV. Now, in terms of the other cast members here, there are some new faces and some very familiar faces. One of the new faces is Amanda Peet. She is best known for her work in 2012, A Lot Like Love, Identity, and The Whole Nine Yards. At the time of this recording, she has 69 acting credits to her name, including a recurring role on the series Dirty John, as Betty Broderick. Here she plays the FBI agent 
who has familiarized herself with the X-Files and brought Mulder back, but is not generally pleased or not generally popular in the FBI because of it. Now, the guest character who had the role written for him was Billy Connolly. He's best known as a comedian. He is actually known for his work on the IMDb for the voice of Fergus in Brave, Il Duce in Boondock Saints, John Brown in Mrs. Brown, and Dane in Hobbit Battle of the Five Armies. Now, Chris Carter brought him in having seen Mrs. Brown because he knew he had dramatic capability. He knew he had the charisma and the impishness to be likable, and he would be able to get you some sympathy for a character that should be wholly unsympathetic. When you're talking about a character inspired by the Catholic Church scandal who has molested 37 children, there's no reason to be sympathetic to this character in any way, shape, or form. But inspired by that and by Carter learning that there were self-policing communities of child molesters who were keeping themselves in check, well, he liked the idea of putting one of these guys in there, and it gave him uh, an arc and a need for redemption that worked for this. And it also gave him the twist of having him actually have a psychic connection because one of his previous victims was one of the ringleaders of this group. So Connolly does have 71 credits to his name, most recently in 2016, which would have been when he was age 74. So he may have retired, which could be why we don't see more recent credits from him at this time. We also have Agent Mosley Drummy. I'm not sure how to pronounce his nickname. His birth name is Alvin Joyner, but his nickname is Sizbit or X-Z-I-B-I-T. He was suggested by Fox, and Chris Carter knew him as the host of Pimp My Ride on MTV. As far as the IMDb is concerned, he is best known for this role in The X-Files, plus roles in Derailed, 8 Mile, and Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. He's got 37 acting credits to his name, most recently playing himself in Broken Ground, but he also has 93 credits as himself, hosting a number of things, predominantly for MTV, but not exclusively. So he was hosting the Charity Celebrity Bowling Tournament, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, Gumball 3000, which was a German series, but he was able to host that, as well as a number of other appearances as himself. Callum Keith Rennie is one of the more familiar faces in the series. He's actually previously appeared twice in the series. He played Tommy in Lazarus, and he was a groundskeeper in Fresh Bones. And he's a Canadian actor that they've frequently considered for major roles in all the 1013 productions. He was in the running for a role in Crycheck, or the role of Crycheck, as well as being in the running for major roles in Millennium and The Lone Gunman, as well as Harsh Realm. Although their comments don't specifically name which of those roles he's been considered for. To me, first and foremost, he'll always be Detective Stanley Raymond Kowalski from the last two seasons of Due South, which were packaged and broadcast as a single season for the U.S. audiences. So he has had a few more roles since we last discussed him, including playing Dr. Carl Malice in Jessica Jones. So he was a recurring villain 
in the second season of Jessica Jones, but he was the kind of villain that completely embodies the cliche, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And he also plays Nikolai in the series Impulse. So he's now up to 132 acting credits. Now he was born in England, but he did spend a fair amount of time in Western Canada in the Edmonton area here. He actually got into acting when he and Bruce McCullough were on a radio show in Edmonton, which is my hometown and where I still live. So it's always nice to see that showing up. Now, Adam Godley plays Father Ibarra here. This is his only appearance in the X-Files. He's got 70 acting credits to his name and is still active today. He is best known for his roles in Breaking Bad as Elliot Schwartz, Suits, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory film by Tim Burton, starring Johnny Depp, and also for playing Pogo in The Umbrella Academy. Alex Dykin plays the head surgeon. He is also very familiar to fans of The X-Files. We've discussed his work before when he appeared as the curator in Humbug, as the tarot dealer in Clyde Brookman's Final Repos, and as Dr. Fingers in Jose Chung's From Outer Space. And he will appear two more times when the series comes back to the air. Nikki Acox we previously saw as Chastity Reigns in the episode Rush. This was the X-Files take on super speed superheroes. She also plays the second victim, so the one who was run off the road coming back from swimming. She's got 52 credits to her name most recently in 2014. Now, Fagan Woodcock plays Franz Tomczesen, I think I'm pronouncing that name remotely correctly, T-O-M-C-Z-E-S-Z-Y-N, who appears to have been named after a member of the production crew. He's got a grand total of six acting credits to his name, and this is the role he is best known for. He also appeared in a short film called POV, Da Vinci's City Hall, The Gutter Diaries, Merlin's Apprentice, and his most recent appearance is as the elusive crime lord in the episode of Psych titled Lock, Stock, Some Smoking Barrels, and Burton Guster's Goblet of Fire. That title tells you a bit about the tone of Psych. Highly recommended. Marco Nicoli plays Christian Fearin. That's the boy who was the patient of Scully's. This is his only IMDb credit. Kerry Roshinsky plays Margaret Fearin. The IMDb lists 24 credits for her, most recently in 2015. This is the one she's best known for, although she also appears in Hot Rod, R.L. Stein's The Haunting Hour, and The Killing as Miss Herman. Now, Spencer Maybe is best known on the IMDb for playing Bear Fearin in this, as well as directing I Really, Really Like You, The Eternal Void, and Little Pig. He's got 22 acting credits to his name, most recently in 2016, although he has been directing since then. So he may not be doing a lot of acting these days, but he is still active in the industry. Veronica Hadrava plays the female assistant. This is one of her 26 acting credits, and she is best known for this role, as well as roles in Supernatural, The Unseen, and Fringe. This is her only credit with 1013 Productions. Now, Denis Krasnoglov is an interesting one. He's got seven credits to his name. This is his final IMDb credit, playing the male assistant. His first IMDb credit is playing the one-armed leader in Terma, although he wasn't actually credited on screen. 
but he's the man who cut off Krychek's arm. He's also appeared in Seven Days, Samantha's Art, The L Word, Children of Fate, and Alternative Dispute Resolution. Patrick Keating plays the slight man. He's got 53 acting credits to his name. He is still active today. He is best known for his work in 1922, Summer of 84, and The 4400. He has also appeared previously in The X-Files. He played Donald Gelman in Kill Switch and will come back again in the rebooted series. Now, Roger Horshaw plays the elderly gent in this. That is his sole acting credit in the IMDb. Unfortunately, he passed away on May 2nd, 2020. So this is likely his only acting credit that's going to appear on the IMDb. He did win Tony Awards in both the 46th and 54th Annual Tony Awards, and has also appeared in a Stanley Marcus documentary as himself that is still filming. So I suspect that although his IMDb credit list is fairly short, if you could look him up in some sort of Broadway credit database, he would have a lot more credits to his name. Stephen E. Miller has 173 acting credits to his name. The most recent completed work was released in 2014, although he is listed as Gene in Room 19, which is in pre-production, but has not yet come out. He's best known for his work in Scooby 2 2, Monsters Unleashed, Da Vinci's Inquest, RV, and Best in Show. He previously appeared as Coroner Truitt in the pilot episode of The X-Files, as Tactical Commander in Dwayne Barry, and as Wayne Morgan in Piper Maru. Santa Radley plays Monica Bannon, so she's got a very brief on-screen appearance as the agent that they were sent to find. She's got a very distinctive look and was immediately recognizable. The IMDb says that she's best known for this role, as well as roles in Slither, 13 Ghosts, and Tomorrowland. She also plays Mrs. Meeks in The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. She's been a homeless woman in two different episodes of Supernatural that were five years apart. She's got 50 acting credits to her name and is still active today. We previously discussed her work when she played a waitress in the postmodern Prometheus. So she is the actress that poured the coffee in Mulder's lap, if memory serves. She also appeared in a Canadian comedy titled Way Downtown, which I also recommend. Now, Lorena Gale is another familiar face who unfortunately passed away in 2009. She is best known for her work in Freddy Got Fingered, Halloween Resolution, The Butterfly Effect, and Traitor. Here she's the doctor that joins them in the Zoom call when they are discussing the options for the sick boy. A lot of our listeners would probably know her primarily as her, for her work as Elosha in eight episodes of the rebooted Battlestar Galactica, or even more likely for the three roles that she'd previously played on The X-Files, as Ellen Bloodsoe in Shadows, Nurse Wilkins in One Breath, and as an attorney in Elegy. Donovan Stinson plays the suited man here. He is best known for his work as the X Games announcer in Fantastic Four, Josh McTaggart in Call Me Fitz, as well as working in the visual effects department of District 9 and playing Nevin in Chaos Theory. He also had a recurring role in Reaper, another show I'd highly recommend. Dion Johnstone has 42 acting credits to his name, still active today. He's best known for his work in Core, The Tempest, Dreamcatcher, and playing first cop in this film. This is his only X-Files credit. We discussed Sarah Jane Redmond before when she played the young mum in Aubrey and Karen Matthews in Schizogeny. She also played Lucy Butler 
in six episodes of Millennium, and Inga Fossa in four episodes of Harsh Realm. So she is one who's frequently hired by 1013 Productions. She plays the special agent in charge in this film. Now, Christina Delamonte has a grand total of four acting credits to her name. She played Kathleen in Do Not Disturb, the Doctor's colleague in X-Files, I Want to Believe, and also had roles in Stock and Awe and Weekend Killer. This is one of the first roles for Luvia Peterson. She plays the OR nurse. She is best known now for her work in this film, as well as in Falling Skies, Ghost Wars, and Continuum. But she is active today and has also appeared in things like Supernatural and Riverdale. Babs Chula plays a surgeon. She's got 113 acting credits to her name and is best known for her work in J-Pod, Double Jeopardy, The Accused, and this film. Her most recent work is from 2010, when she passed away at age 63. This is the first appearance of Marsha T. House in The X-Files. She plays the sheriff. She will return when the series returns to television. She is best known for her work in Godzilla, The Big Year, The Mountain Between Us, and the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still. She is very much still active today with multiple roles in 2020, the year this is recorded, and two other roles listed in post-production and pre-production. Joseph Patrick Finn is a producer on a number of series, including The X-Files, where he was producer right from 1993 to 2018, as well as work on The Flash and other series. Here he plays the Whispering Priest as J.P. Finn in one of his six acting credits, He's another familiar face since he also played the chaplain in the list, confessor in All Souls, and will come back again in the rebooted series. Beth Seeger plays the anesthesiologist in her only IMDb credit. Stacey Copeland returns to the X-Files as well. She previously played Woman Number 1, uncredited in Talitha Kumi, and Hostage Number 4, uncredited in Folie à Deux. Those are her first two IMDb credits. Here she plays a doctor and is still working today with 21 credits to her name. She is best known for her work in this film, as well as Eureka, The Andromeda Strain, and Strange World. Tom Sharon plays Sheriff Horton in his only IMDb credit, and Brent C.S. O'Connor has only seven credits to his name. This is the second last credit. His most recent credit is from 2008 in Trial by Fire. His other credits include the 4400 Smallville Stargate SG-1, the Party Never Stops, Diary of a Binge Drinker, and The Bionic Woman. He also performs some stunts in Jumanji. So now that we know who put it together, well, how did it do? The first film didn't quite hit the 100 million mark, although it was profitable. So Fox was definitely open to seeing more and getting more films out of it. But they wanted a safer bet, especially since the looming writer's strike might mean that things got suspended and stopped, and then they would have to pay to have people on a retainer, and it could end up being very expensive. So Chris Carter promised them that he could get an X-Files movie made for only $30 million, which seemed like a very safe financial bet. He got it done. Now, they were very secretive. There were paparazzi filming right from day one. They had fake script sheets. They had fake names on the production, everything they were doing to try and keep it secret, but that wasn't quite enough. And 
They kept it so secret that production had already begun before Mitch Pileggi knew that Skinner was in the script, which he said at the Comic-Con had its ups and downs. The downside was it was very short notice when he was called in to actually film the part. The good side was that they were committed to producing it, the script was locked, and the writer's strike was in effect so he couldn't be written out of it, so it gave him a lot more leverage when he was negotiating his pay for what actually was a relatively small role in the film. It was an important role, just not a whole lot of screen time for him. And then when this came out on July 25th of 2008, it did not perform as well as expected. And there's a few reasons for that. One of them is that it came out the week after The Dark Knight, with Heath Ledger as the Joker. People expected that to be popular. They didn't expect it to be the absolute juggernaut it was, bolstered partly by Ledger's untimely death. So even though it had a $30 million budget, the opening weekend box office was only $10 million. So the film should have eventually been profitable. In the end, it ended up grossing about $21 million domestically in theaters, which is less than the budget. So if that was it, it would have been a loss in theaters. Internationally, it brought in another $48 million. So the total worldwide is $69,363,381. So it's more than double the budget, not quite triple. Although home video sales have probably bolstered it, partly because when this came out in Blu-ray... For the first, I'm not sure how long, the only way to get this film in Blu-ray was to get it in a two-pack with the first X-Files movie. So they had them bundled together to try and force you to rebuy Fight the Future or to get I Want to Believe along with Fight the Future. It is a nice set that even has the extended edition of the movie, which is about three and a half minutes longer with footage that was cut primarily to keep it at a PG-13 rating. So it was just a little more graphic than what they were shooting for. It also didn't help that it had a lukewarm audience reception. The IMDb user score on this is only a 5.9 out of 10. So it had middling reviews. Some people were disappointed that it was a standalone. The most common criticism is, well, it's just like an episode of the show. And I'm not too clear on how that's supposed to be negative when you're looking at a movie that spins out of a TV show and it is very similar to that show it spun out of. To me, it sounds like something that's worth seeing if you enjoy the show. And while I did enjoy it, even at that time, I was still recommending anyone who asked, see The Dark Knight first, because it was a better movie and it was one of the last ones to really sell out over and over and over, week after week after week. So because this didn't perform as well as anticipated, that derailed the plans to come back to the series in 2012. That was the original plan, was to have the third film in the franchise come out and fulfill that prophecy from the truth, where the end of the Mayan calendar on December 22nd, 2012, was going to be the invasion date and the end of the world. As I said, like we know, that didn't happen. And I said there were a few reasons for it. I don't know how impactful this was, but a lot of the friends that I had who were fans of the series that wouldn't see this in theaters didn't want to see it because the trailers made it clear that there was a lot of heavy snow, and they just didn't want to spend two hours watching snow in the summer. It is entirely possible that the seasonal setting meant that this might have been more successful 
as a release around the U.S. Thanksgiving in November, when people are more amenable to wintertime stories. Again, I know that impacted at least a few people around these parts. I don't know how much of a worldwide impact that is. I do live in a part of the world where there's typically snow on the ground for six months of the year, so people don't necessarily want to be reminded of it in the warmer parts of the year as well. So when I first conceived of this podcast, I thought there were only going to be two episodes left at this point. So after discussing the film, I was going to discuss the topic we will discuss next week, an episode of Bones, which is a parody of the X-Files, and then a series wrap-up. But the series did come back to TV for two more shorter seasons. So we will be discussing Bones next week, and then the week after that we will take a look at the first episode of the Event series, My Struggle. So join us again for those, and thank you for listening.